Hello, Happy New Year. How's 2023 going for you thus far? It's pretty wet and miserable here in Manchester, UK. Well, today's guest and topic are sure to warm your cockles because I'm talking about London street food and street food sellers with Charlie Taverner. But before we start, don't forget I want to hear your thoughts about today's topic. Do you have any memories of maybe the types of foods that Charlie's talking about? Did you see them being sold on streets, not just in London, but outside of London, of course? Did any of your relatives sell food on the streets? I'd really love to know. There are many ways to contact me, as you probably know. If you do have anything to add, email neil at britishfoodhistory.com, Twitter at neilbuttery, Instagram at doctor, that's dr underscore neil underscore buttery, I'm on Mastodon. I've set up a Facebook discussion group called British Food of History, the same name as the blog. Hunt it out. All the links, they're in the show notes, so you don't have to jot anything down. You can just click a hyperlink. If you can, please like, rate, and follow the British Food of History podcast. Let's get it further up those food, history, and arts charts. It's doing pretty well at the moment, but there's always room for improvement. By the way, if you want to start a subscription and help the podcast and blogs to keep going and to receive a monthly newsletter, have a listen at the end of the podcast where I shall tell you about it and I'll keep you abreast of any other news as well. If this new year means you're trying to do some healthier eating, let me remind you that my book, A Dark History of Sugar, published by Pen and Sword History, is available as a form of excellent aversion therapy. Okay, back to today's episode. I spoke to Charlie about his book, Street Food, Hawkers and the History of London, in December 2022. It's going to be published on the 12th of January 2023. Charlie is a historian currently working at Trinity College Dublin. His book looks at London street food sellers from the latter half of the 16th century right up to the beginning of the 20th. We talked about how one approaches collecting data from such a long period in history and how you turn information about individuals into usable data that can help build a picture, not just of street food and London itself, but also the individuals themselves. We also talked about what is meant by the terms hawker, costermonger, and fishwife, the importance of street food sellers to London society and London economy. We also talked about ice cream, fruit, and the logistics of delivering fresh milk to an ever-growing population. As per usual, I'll be back at the end to tell you about this week's Easter eggs and to let you know about any other news. But now, London Street Food Sellers with Charlie Taverner. Welcome to the podcast, Charlie. It's very good to have you on. Your book, Street Food, Hawkers and the History of London, is fascinating. When I saw it pop up on my Twitter feed, I immediately had to go and check it out. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, it's been a long time in, in the coming. Uh, lots of years of research have gone mm. into it and then a bit more of writing and then various pandemic delays to, to the whole process. But I'm really excited to, to see it in the world and to talk about street food and this kind of big swathe of London's history with, with all sorts of people and really pleased to be here with you. Oh, well, thank you. I guess the first question I need to ask really is, well, why did you write it? And what got you maybe interested in that particular rather niche topic of uh, street sellers or street food sellers in London? 
probably it goes back a very kind of long kind of way and you probably have to be a bit biographical about it to start mm-hmm. right at the root. Like I'm from a farming family down in, down in Devon, down in the West Country, and spent a lot of my youth, you know, working on the farm. We had a farm shop and a butchery and stuff like that. Um, so kind of food and its importance to kind of everyday life is very kind of obvious and evident to me. Mm-hmm. And that kind of continued as well in kind of working life. I mean, went and did a history degree. And then actually my first my first job was as a news reporter. I was a journalist Ooh. at Farmer's Weekly magazine. So mm-hmm. I spent my early 20s uh, writing about the milk and beef industries in the UK, which was good fun. All of which meant when I returned to do a, to a PhD at, at Birkbeck um, University of London, which is a fabulous place, I was already interested in... Kind of social history, and um, particularly of the early modern period, as, as as academics talk about it, which is really the the 16th to 18th centuries. And I found that food, this thing that I'd kind of brought with me from my background and my life, was a really interesting way into all sorts of kind of aspects and kind of questions of of social history. Um, and food, not necessarily in a kind of fussy, pretentious kind of way, but lots of the bread and butter Mm. that's an awful food history pun but bread and butter (laughs) issues that puts food right at the heart of our everyday existence the street food question how i ended up on that specific topic topic i'm not sure really again it kind of evolved from all sorts of different directions i think if i was going to pick a an origin story i think it emerged from the fact that one of the projects that i previously researched was around history of markets where in the past, all sorts of trading was supposed to take place. So like legitimate side of buying and selling of food. And when I was studying the history of markets in in London and other cities around England um, in the past, these figures kept cropping up um, who were accused of selling food in the wrong places. They were accused of hawking food around Mm. the streets and, 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 and cities. What interested me, I think, was this tension between the fact that they were always being complained about by urban governors, these hawkers who were selling food all over the place, breaking the rules of the old market system. But at the same time, they were always there. They never seemed to go away. Mm. And there was also a kind of grudging acknowledgement that they were playing some kind of important role within feeding towns and cities across the country. So that was a thread that I wanted to tug on. It became this broader exploration of, of, of street selling as an idea. These people who buy and sell food on the fringes of kind of what's legitimate while also playing a really important role in, in keeping citizens fed. Knowing that you've spent some time yourself at the coalface, as it were, <laughs> seems to have rubbed off in the writing because it's certainly not your typical dry, in inverted commas, sort of academic history book. You also talk about the individuals and it really helps to build up a, a really vivid uh, mental picture of the people, their environment. And you look at every aspect of their lives. But how, I mean, how did you even begin tackling? Because we're talking from quite, quite a large period of history mm. that, you, that you looked at uh, London through, quite a lot of stuff to, to wade through. Yeah. yeah. How do you even begin, I don't know, first of all, collecting yeah. that data and then somehow pinning down what those people were like? I mean, that's you know, quite a thing to do. The project started as an exploration of street selling in the like the 16th to, to 18th centuries, the period in which I'm kind of, that's my background as a historian, mm. that's the period of research. And then eventually I wanted to try and expand it through into the Victorian period and slightly into the 20th century as well. Um, because 
street selling as a phenomenon didn't go away immediately as you get into Victorian London. In fact, it kind of evolved and kind of grew and expanded um, in all sorts of um, wonderful ways. And for me, I was hoping to try and look at the way that street selling kind of tied this whole wonderful period of London's history together from the age of kind of Shakespeare, hmm. um, etc., in the the late um, 16th century, the, the, the twilight of the Elizabethan age, through to the eve of the First World War. Hmm. And that's an enormous kind of long span of history, but I thought that's something fascinating in the fact that street selling remains vital um, to the food system within all that time, which is a great idea, but it's a very big span of history. Hmm. And you're right. One of the ways I thought as a way into to telling that story was to focus on individual people and individual individual kind of lives. Focusing on the individual lives of people who are very wealthy and leave all sorts of um, recorded information um, is one thing. Doing it with the kinds of people who end up selling food on the street, who tend to be very poor, lots of them are women, um, mm-hmm. lots of them coming from all sorts of um, interesting and varied backgrounds is a whole nother, another exercise. It's okay for the Victorian period because, um, as lots of people will know, we have starting to get uh, loads of newspapers, lots of surveys of low life and and explorations of that sort. We also get the first censuses, which offer a much more kind of robust um, insight into ordinary people than is possible for earlier periods. In those kind of preceding centuries, while London is growing rapidly, we have to kind of come up with an alternative um, way of digging up. Um, these people's experience Mm. and so my main kind of approach was to rather than look at the the way these people were represented in art and music and literature um, I wanted to try and look at the way that they appeared in all sorts of other documents where we get little snapshots of people's existence Um, so I spent a lot of time trawling through court records parish Mm. records the uh, the documents that were left behind um, by all the sort of other all the different tiers of local government within London, and looking for occasional mentions, incidental mentions of kind of street sellers or people involved in street selling, and then I gathered all those kind of together, these little scraps, and put mm. them together in to create kind of more kind of holistic picture. So actually, I ended up with about 800 or so um, individuals who I was able to identify um, who sold food on the street in some mm-hmm. way between about 1600 and, and 1825. So those individuals, I was able to kind of record different bits of information about them based on that based on that little mention where they appeared in the sources. So I could identify perhaps their age, where they came from, obviously we might know their gender, we might know a little bit more about their particular living circumstances, were they renting somewhere, were they living in a little garret above, a, above an inn or something like that. And then slowly... By slowly but surely, we can build up a, a bigger picture of all these 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 people's lives, even though they appear very briefly um, in the historical record. And it was good fun. I mean, it was good fun at the end when you've got lots of these people to write about and to, to think about. And the process of gathering all that information was occasionally quite dispiriting, as you might imagine. Yeah, I mean, I love handling data. It's one of my fa- favourite parts of the process, but collecting the data... <laughs> It's a very different thing. <laughs> it's it's a it's a really interesting thing to deal with too to create data out of these ordinary 
people's lives because they're essentially people like you and me kind of we're kind of we're talking now we're rounded individuals mm-hmm. and then I'm a historian sitting somewhere in their future who's kind of <laughs> gathered all these scraps of their lives <laughs> together into some sort of kind of data set and um, they're they're um, you know you you have to treat them with I think due respect mm. and um, kind of care at the same time. I suppose you must get some biases though, uh, in some ways, like which you can't help. In that, you know, if you have to resort to uh, court hearings, so it's people who are in court and perhaps are more shady or perhaps not. You I mean it depends what the conclusion of the uh, the hearing was. And I guess there's just obviously hundreds, if not thousands, of people just went under the radar because perhaps there wasn't anything particularly, from our point of view, <laughs> noteworthy about their lives. So nothing that we can see, tangibly see, from from the 21st century. There were two, I mean, there were two big kind of bodies of kind of material in, in the archive and that I could split, um, split them into looking back. One set in which street sellers appear as just kind of odd bystanders in, in whatever the recorded events were. So, for example, there'd be a kind of court case involving a robbery that takes place somewhere on the street and the street seller gets called to that case at the Old ah, Bailey as so a witness. So it's not because they're in court necessarily, it's just that, I guess there's a street seller in every corner, so there's always yeah, a street seller They're very good witnesses, they're, they're, kind of, right. they're someone you can drag up. And then the other batch of material are cases where street sellers were ending up in mm. trouble. So perhaps it was like a case in um, the the London ward that was near the church of um, St Dunstan in the West, which is just near kind of Fleet Street, um, where through several decades at the start of the 17th century, the local officials were always moaning about a number of street sellers, um, apparently led by one man called Adam Harrison, who were selling apples and oysters and other things on the streets and blocking this very, very busy highway. So you can tell in that case, we can learn an awful lot about Harrison and those around him there from from that incident. But of course, that record has been created because he's being accused of a particular particular nuisance. So you've always got to keep that kind of bias in mind. Could you maybe tell us a little bit about the kinds of foods they were selling and and where they were selling it? That's a big question, what they were selling. I mean, the the best (laughs) way to start it off, I think, is what they weren't selling. Hmm. Uh, And and the first of those things is the street food that we're we're, um, used to today um, in, in 21st century London. So the street food of London's past was not necessarily the kind of fashionable culinary trend that it's become, mm. um, in which we have kind of dishes inspired by all around the world, um, cooked for people with lots of disposable income who can afford to kind of go and have a slightly expensive treat as part of kind of leisure and enjoyment. It, it was different. It's different to that. The other thing that this street food was not was hawkers generally weren't selling the staples, the absolute foundations of, of, of people's diet okay. in the in the period before the 20th century. So they weren't selling bread beer and the main meats really your, sure. your, your your beef in particular those foods were like i said the the real staples of, of the diet and therefore their trade was much more heavily controlled and, and and regulated but beyond that hawkers sold a fabulous range both of foods that were ready to eat snacks that, that could be eaten but also ingredients that required a little bit of cooking so there were lots of um, fish that they were selling um, which tended to be cheaper varieties things like mackerel place um, sole mm-hmm. um, and shellfish including kind of oysters and things like that which were available in, in in much greater numbers they were also selling 
plenty of fruit. They were really important source for picking up kind of small parcels um, of fruit that could be grown in the orchards um, of, of the home counties. Mm. And along with that, um, vegetables too. Um, the period of the kind of late 16th and early century, 17th centuries was the start of big market gardening yes. around London. Mm-hmm. And hawkers were um, vital for bringing that produce, you know, humble stuff like cabbages and potatoes through to little delicious, more seasonal morsels like fresh peas and even asparagus right to people's doors. They also sold um, something that people might not think about a street food at all, which was fresh milk, milk that was like the market, like like the, the produce of the market gardens and the orchards produced right on London's doorstep. And beyond those raw foods, if you will, there mm-hmm. were all sorts of stuff that could be consumed right away on the street or, or soon after. Early on, that was uh, kind of simple recipes like gingerbread or pies. And then in the 19th century, this menu of ready-to-eat foods expands dramatically, right through from hearty, warm things like uh, hot sheep's trotters and pea soup, um, through to sandwiches and meat puddings. And then at the other end of the, the meal spectrum, there's sorts of uh, all sorts of sweet treats like um, ice cream uh, and uh, cakes yes. and, and, yeah. and crumpets. Um, so it really takes in a whole wide diversity of foodstuffs that could be counted as street food. You mentioned the word hawkers a few times there. In fact, I guess there's three terms that are used in the in the book that people are, I'm sure they've heard and have certain, maybe carry a certain amount of baggage whether deserved or not. And that's hawker, costermonger, and fishwife. Mm-hmm. <laughs> those um, names, or perhaps the meanings behind those names of, from reading your book and see have changed quite a lot through, <laughs> through the centuries. Yeah. Well, let's take hawker first. Mm. Maybe that's the least weighted term. <laughs> yeah. I use the word hawker throughout the book probably uh, the most often of all it's in the book's t- it's in the book subtitle and i chose to do that because it works as a more neutral term yeah. compared to the other options in the 16th and 17th centuries in particular the word hawker didn't really refer specifically to someone selling food in fact it tended to be someone selling kind of small manufactured goods things like ribbons or kind of buttons or knives or, or pamphlets and mm-hmm. um, so it had a slightly more um, kind of focused meaning though the verb hawking encompassed this broader idea of um, kind of selling elsewhere. The reason I, I chose, see. though, to use that term, even though it's slightly anachronistic for the entire period that the book covers, is because it allows me to avoid the range of other terms that were often used to refer to street sellers in history, not necessarily by themselves, mm-hmm. but by other people who might want to disparage them in, in some way. And perhaps the best example of one of those derogatory terms is fishwife. Yes. And lots of people might have a vague sense of the slightly rude term fishwife. Um, yes. And it had a very richly developed and complex meaning in, in the 17th century, especially. The fishwife was a character who supposedly sold fish. She was a woman, she was generally middle-aged, but she was also seen as someone who drank an awful lot, Mm-hmm. Um, who potentially was not fulfilling her duties as a wife, who swore 
who generally subverted all the ideals of, of good womanhood um, yes. in society at the time. And as such, this figure became a kind of scapegoat for everything that was wrong um, with Tudor and Stuart London, really. It was a way of complaining about the way that there seemed to be lots of um, independent women roaming the streets and apparently pushing men out of work, accused of breaking the market rules by um, trading elsewhere and therefore pushing up food prices. And generally, they were seen as a cause of the, you know, the dissolute atmosphere that, that was kind of felt to be plaguing the city. And as a result, this wasn't a label that hawkers really wanted to embrace themselves. All those thousands of, of, of women that were dominating the street trades at the time, this began as a trade dominated by women. Yes. That fishwife label has a little bit of a, a, a grain of truth to it. Mm. This was a label that they didn't want to um, use to describe their own work. So when you see women given the opportunity, women who were selling food in the streets, given the opportunity to explain how they made their livelihood, they just took a more, I don't know, roundabout way of describing kind of how they made their living. So like in, in a good case that I, I remember really well is in 1695, um, a woman called Mary Knapp was given the chance um, at one of London's church courts to say, how do you maintain yourself? And she said she did, show, she did so by selling fish and fruit and the like. She rejected that label, fishwife. She wanted nothing to do with it. The other label that then takes on lots of meaning in the 19th century though it's got a slightly older history, is costermonger. And this word does get used occasionally, and it kind of goes back kind of certainly to the 16th century, if not a little bit earlier. Mm. But in the, the mid-Victorian era, it becomes the point around which the whole stereotypical culture of street selling in London becomes, becomes focused. In large part, that's due to the most famous chronicler of London street life from that time, who's, who's Henry Mayhew. And in his monumental um, London Labour and the London Poor, um, he focuses the first section on this figure of the costermonger. A costermonger is described as a man, usually, though he might have a costermonger wife, who is a, an upstanding kind of fellow who wears a waistcoat. He usually has a neckerchief and, a, and some kind of cap. He has his constant companion, who's a donkey, who pulls his barrow full of, full, full of produce. And these costermongers, while they might seem entertaining and funny and they speak their own slang, according to, to Mayhew's characterization, hmm. there's a crudeness also to the way that they're being described. They're really seen as a class apart. They're one of London's, what Mayhew calls their nomad tribes, these drifters who, who scrape a living on the streets of the city. And there's not only a class aspect to this, but there's certainly a racial side to this too. Uh, and many of the tropes that are used to describe costermongers are applied also to people like the Irish um, and there's a mm. huge Irish immigrant population in the city. So you can see, therefore, that the costermonger character, though eventually it does become something that street sellers start to build themselves around in a, uh, in a more uh, kind of positive way, its roots are very much in seeing themselves as distinctive and different and separate from the rest of the London population. And this is one of the big difficulties, this issue of labelling, whether you're calling someone a fishwife or a costermonger, who's calling them that? And for people who live and work on the economic margins, they don't always have the chance to take on a kind of a lofty and reputable occupational kind of title, something that would immediately yeah. garner you respect. 
if you were going to come up with an equivalent, you know, a fishmonger or a greengrocer, these are members of established trades with their own kind of guilds and trade bodies who play a more active role in the legitimate side of commerce in the city. They might also have physical shops that give them a degree of status too. Whereas street sellers, not only are they making much less money because their trade is kind of cheaper and uh, kind of less regular and they're dealing in, in cheaper kinds of produce, but the way that they trade, their status in society is, is much lower and they don't have the trappings that other um, re- retailers receive. One of the other things I, I found quite interesting was uh, you really kind of emphasise how much those hawkers really need to know London, the places to go, where to get their food, the best spots to stand, what parts of the day. They really need to know the place like the back of their hand. So although they might be separate from the rest of London society, they probably knew London better than anybody <laughs> mm. at the same time. But then on the the other side of that coin, uh, you talk about also the maybe more as you kind of get to Victorian times, so, uh, yeah, maybe end of the 18th century. Into that mix, you do get kind of waves of immigrants coming in. So there's this kind of, who obviously don't know London, <laughs> mm. but do a really good job of integrating themselves in. I guess the best example of that is ice cream, um, mm. the one that immediately comes to my mind as, yeah. as well. And so, and the ice cream example is a, is a wonderfully vivid one because. We have a really clear idea of, of what we think that, that that's like. And it does have a very strong immigrant influence. Ice cream being sold on the streets seems to be linked directly to the wave of immigration from the area, kind of a little bit north of Naples, though the people that come over are kind of, kind of uh, in a shorthand referred to as Neapolitans. Mm. This immigrant community that's very tight knit and seems to live generally kind of just north of Hoburn in the Saffron Hill kind of kind of area on the way up to Clerkenwell. And there are kind of wonderful descriptions of, of this neighbourhood where people are spending the early part of the morning preparing their ice cream, kind of mixing their, their ice that they've collected with all sorts of with all sorts of flavourings. And it's presented by the journalists um, who go and write about this as a wonderfully exotic and, and exciting thing. But of course, with immigration in a city, as everyone is very well aware, there's often a, a double double side to it as well. And while those accounts of exciting immigrant culture that's being imported to the capital and all the tastes that they're bringing kind of seem wonderful um, on one side, on the other, they're also expressing a kind of xenophobia that emphasises mm. the, the strangeness of these people. The fact that they're being knit together in this tight community is also seen as a kind of cause of suspicion. And there are lots of accusations that appear in the newspapers and kind of court cases that get brought up to do with people apparently falling ill and and that illness being blamed on the fact that some kids um, picked up some ice cream from an Italian kind of street vendor and then they've all fallen foul and, and, and ended up in hospital and in some, some sad cases some some people died. Often there's a you go back in time as a, a tiny kernel of truth somewhere in these prejudices. Well, that, that, this know. is the important thing as well with uh, looking at kind of street food in the past is not imposing our own assumptions about the conditions in which things were made or, you know, and things like kind of hygiene standards on the past. The example that really sticks in my mind is a small one, and it's about a place that's very close to my home. It's from the 1890s. There was a police court case um, that involved a street seller called John Hurley, who was selling some fruit on Essex Road. Essex Road is where I live. That's why it's close to home. Okay. <laughs> and he was accused of selling rotten fruit. Now, when this case came to court, 
the way it got described um, in the various witness statements was that um, Hurley was setting up his stall one morning and some kids came over and asked for a small amount of some specks. Now, specks that we learned through the court case were fruit that was blemished, that was specked, okay. but it was fairly sound. And he slipped out this box of specks from below, below and underneath his stall and, and handed them to the kids for probably a cut price rate. But then the neighbourhood health inspector was apparently lurking nearby and saw what was going on took issue with the fact this fruit, this fruit looked terrible and semi-rotten and dragged him to go and face charges. And that makes you think, would we look at that fruit and, and think, this is awful, you shouldn't be selling it, therefore street food in the past was selling kind of vile food to vile sorts of people on the streets who mm. kind of should know better and need to be improved? Or was that an ingenious solution to bringing nutritious food for a reasonable price to ordinary people in, in parts of working London. Yes, where else are they going to get some vitamin C from Yeah, <laughs> if they're not getting that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and fruit, fruit's a really good example of, of, of street food that connects past and present as well, because actually if you go to cities all around the world where street sellers are still important, fruit is one of the most commonly sold things. It doesn't get the headlines. It's not the delicious dishes that we end up seeing on the street food uh, menus at markets around the UK mm. but small portions of fruit sometimes already cut up and ready to eat it's a really important part of people's everyday kind of existence and you can go and pick that up pick that up from a vendor and that was true in London's past too. It's a good way of accessing foods that would be otherwise just out of their price ranges you know not these mm. market gardens the fruits was were extremely expensive and I like how you kind of describe how they actually have a really important niche in the whole market economy because they can sort of take the, the stuff that's maybe well not dubious quality medium quality I suppose mm. and take that off the hands of the uh, actual fruit and veg traders or nursery mm. men or seeds men or whoever they may have been and go off and yeah. sell things for a penny or a couple of pence so the wholesalers are getting rid of stock of that the other people probably wouldn't take and your regular Joes, as you and me would be <laughs> at that time, I'm sure, wandering the streets, get a chance to have something which no way would we have been able to afford mm. otherwise. Street sellers perform all sorts of really important roles kind of within mm. the economy of London and providing small parcels of reasonably priced food is one of them. And the way they can do that is because they're quite flexible. So unlike other uh, retailers who have big overheads and you know possibly long-term contracts and things like that, and long-term business relationships with people, they're able to change what they're selling quite quickly. They can react to occasions when there's a glut of produce. They can react to occasions when you know some things are being sold off cheap for some sort of reason, perhaps they're of a less favourable kind of quality. And they're able to take that produce and find a market for it. Their flexibility is a really great advantage for themselves as, as, as business people, but it also really benefits the London population. And because of London's big concentration of people, street sellers have a ready market for all this, this produce mm. that they're poking up. And that big population is possibly able to enjoy those occasional treats, those occasional delights, that odd or a bit of fruit, you know, those cherries that have just come in season in great numbers and therefore are being sold cheap. They're able to enjoy those little treats in a way that people in, in smaller centres weren't necessarily able, even if they were relatively low down the social scale. One of the foods that I guess was much a, a little bit more uh, diplomatic, <laughs> everybody <laughs> wants to get a hold of, is, is milk. It's the one food stuff that really leapt out to me, I suppose, when I was reading your book, because it's so fresh, it has to be kept fresh. 
And there's quite a, well, it's a complex infrastructure. And by today's standards, it just seems such hard work, so grueling and so open to error. How did people access fresh milk in mm. a huge city with very little, or certainly less green space than the countryside? One of the big solutions that street sellers often offered to people in the past was getting over the the problem of perishability with all sorts of food. Because in the era before railways and the rapid transport that delivered and before mechanised forms of refrigeration, mm. stuff like uh, soft fruit, like berries, but also things like fish and milk, obviously goes off very fast. Mm. And the only way of dealing with that, if you haven't got a big supply of, of, of ice or you can preserve it in the form of butter or cheese or something like that, is to deliver it very quickly to the mouths who are going to consume it. And... People had a big demand for, for those uh, delicious foods like fresh milk and, and, and soft fruit. And hawkers were part of the system that kind of obliged and, and sorted that out. So we know that there were lots of small dairy farms around uh, the fringes of London, certainly by the 16th century, if not a bit earlier. The, the great historian um, of that period, the antiquarian John Stowe, he described drinking milk hot from the kine um, from a small <laughs> farm that was uh, just beyond um, kind of Tower Hill in his youth. And records like wills and other sorts of, of probate documents turn up the fact that as we get into the post-1600 period, we're starting to find a number of reasonably sized dairying operations in, in parishes, in areas that were right on the edge of the built-up area in places that now are the heart of metropolitan London, places like just beyond uh, Covent Garden, St Martin's in the Fields, St Giles, even Bethnal Green at the heart of the East End now. These were places that were much more open, full of green fields, and there were lots of cows grazing in them. These people who, who had access to this land realised that they could provide fresh milk to this London population that was hungry for it. But their problem was they needed to get it very quickly into the into the centre. And this is where street sellers were very useful because they were a cheap form of distribution. The basic structure of the industry was you had cowkeepers, people who had the cows, and then you had milkmen and women whose job it was to carry the milk um, into the, to the city, perhaps once or, or twice a day. Some of these milkmen and women did the milking themselves mm -hmm. and then carried it into the city, um, you know, walking along busy roads before uh, before the day is broken, dodging traffic along the way with a yoke over their shoulders with a sloshing pair of pails um, kind of swinging either side. Some of the hawkers carrying milk perhaps are walking several miles a day with these really heavy loads on their shoulders. And I think thinking about the weight that that required is, is another interesting part of the story, the strain that hawking and carrying all sorts of stuff um, as people did before forms of mass transport. Oh, it just seems such a slog. It does. It's hard mm. for us, I think, to uh, appreciate it. What's fascinating, though, is this system of milk distribution, the hawkers who are bringing milk to, to people's kitchens every morning, mm. endures for a very long time, right into the 19th century. But as it expands... Um, it might endure, but it becomes much more sophisticated and, and lucrative for many people. So 
in the Victorian era, Victorian era, people describing themselves as a milkman or, or woman were not necessarily doing the carrying themselves, but they might employ some fitter, younger men and women to do their, their carrying um, from the barns and the fields where the cows were milked into the city. And because of this kind of growing sophistication, the milk trade by the time that Henry Mayhew was writing, for example, mm. in the 1850s, was not really considered part of the street trades at all. It kind of graduated into this um, slightly different realm. And that set the stage for the later 19th century development of the, the dairy trade, where we get railways playing a bigger role in delivering mm. milk from slightly more distant areas, Essex and in East Anglia and places like that. Specialised milk trains were, were carrying kind of large quantities and therefore distributing it in the city once that milk arrived at a railway depot was a much more complicated operation and then it became taken over by large dairy firms who had all sorts of teams of, of employees and they were overseen by managers and this became a big, large industry. Hey, we're going to have to wrap up when is the book out? The book's out on the 12th of January, 2023, um, with Oxford, Oxford University Press. It's an academic book in the sense that it's built on lots of research and it's rigorously peer-reviewed, but it's written for, for a broad audience and it's a subject that I know um, lots of people will be interested in and, it, and it's priced at, therefore, a much more normal rate. So, yeah, you can find it in all your, your good bookstores online and um, in the real world too. Oh, well, I'm sure people are going to love it. I'm sure listeners are going to go out and hunt it out because it is well worth hunting out. What else is on the horizon 2023 Yeah, for you, Charlie? Anything you can tell us about? My day job is I work at Trinity College Dublin, though I still live in London, um, as part of a big um, food history project, which looks at the history of food in, in Ireland in the 16th and 17th centuries. It's tremendous fun. Um, we're mixing all sorts of approaches from history to archaeology to archaeological science and uh, things like experimental archaeology, um, including brewing uh, beer from the 16th century to understand its nutritional characteristics uh, and its alcoholic content. The big kind of article that, that explores the, uh, the brewing project and its results about the strength of beer in the past is kind of coming out soon. Beyond that, I'm starting to think about a, um, a new book as well that I think at the moment is going to be exploring the central role of kind of food in the medieval and, and early modern world and, and how oh, it differs from the way food is, is kind of seen and, and its position today. Thank you, Charlie. Hopefully you'll come back on in the future and tell us all about them. I've left links in the show notes to Charlie's book, Street Food, Hawkers and the History of London, if you want to check that out. I highly recommend it. There are also links to Charlie's website and his social media handles. There's also a link to the book by Peter Mayhew, London Labour and the London Poor. It's available to read as an e-book and it's an interesting and unique document. And I suspect that you will all very much enjoy having a look at that. So check that out. For my subscribers, there are four Easter eggs associated with this episode on the website, britishfoodhistory.com. We talked more in depth about street food now and then. Also, philanthropists and the cries, which was a fascinating attempt at capturing um, the noise and the cries of the sellers in London in the form of books, art and music. There's also a little more on the topic of milk and how it was often contaminated or watered down. 
if you want to become a £3 subscriber to help support the blog and podcast and to receive my newsletter and all the premium content and Easter eggs, go to the support the blog and podcast tab on the website, britishfoodhistory.com. There, instead, you can make a one-off donation if you prefer no pressure. Oh, and last episode, when I talked to Paula McIntyre about puddings and how delicious they are, <laughs> it got me thinking that some folk might be missing out on the wonder that is the steamed sponge pudding. I have written a step-by-step guide to making them on the blog. This isn't for subscribers, by the way, this is for everyone. That's going to appear on the blog well in a couple of days' time. So keep a lookout for that, especially if you've never made or eaten one before. They are a wondrous, wondrous thing indeed. Oh yes, your regular reminder just to contact me if you've got any questions, comments or queries about this episode or any episode so far for the next postbag edition. Details are in the show notes, of course. Okay, I'm off. Please have a great week. I will return very soon with another episode of the British Food History Podcast. But until then, cheerio.